What's going on, everybody? This is AJ Capasso here from Crime Documentaries. I'm here with my good friend and host. And he's, uh -oh. he's frozen. He's frozen. I froze. Am I am I unfrozen now? You're unfrozen now. Okay. <laughs> so anyway, I'm with Brian John Laverty of Crime Documentaries. How are you, buddy? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I'm looking forward to today's show. Yeah, today we are diving deep into a, a case that is very sickening. Um, a person makes his way into someone's life that you never thought would make in your, you know, make their way into their life. And yeah, we had to put a, uh, we had to put. Well, actually, you know what I need to do? Um, I think I need to do this. Uh, so I'm going to put this up there right now, but. Um, I'm going to have to do this because, uh, this one is a pretty bad one. Um, this guy, um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. um, yeah, I'm going to put up the NC 17 because, uh, this guy, this guy, this guy, Sean, um, was, um, well, AJ, you you go ahead and talk about this guy. I I don't even know well, what to say about this guy. This guy is like master manipulator, master yeah. manipulator. Okay, able to um, basically infiltrate someone's life, acting as if he's living a double life um, as a serial killer. And it's pretty fascinating to hear about this case. I mean. I don't want to give up any information, so let's bring it up and let's start this documentary. Um, I think you guys are going to like this, and I'm glad that we uh, chose this for case number two of crime documentaries. Yeah. Um, this guy is the epitome of a epitome? 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 Is that yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, of uh, somebody you would see walking down the street and go, yeah, that guy gives candy to, you know, cats. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, um, and you know the the well, we'll get into it, and as we go along, we'll we'll stop it here every so often because um, I just can't believe how nonchalant this guy is. He's like, it's like no care in the world whatsoever. Like, what happened in this guy's life that made him this way? And I always wonder about that. They always say when it comes to a serial serial killers or people along that lines there's always there always seems to be a chemical imbalance in their brain yep uh which you gotta wonder if it's like obviously they discovered that right but uh it this guy like let's just get into it but uh epitome thank you chris uh <laughs> i thought i was saying that wrong right. <laughs> but, I'm with you. i went with you on it yeah okay so anyway anyways let's get started uh 
uh, of the case of uh, Sean, uh, Sean Vincent Gillis. Um, and if you guys have seen this video, you know, give us your thoughts about this guy. If you haven't still give us your thoughts about this guy. And, uh, but it's definitely, it's definitely an interesting case. And, and something that we uh, AJ sent it to me he goes. Let's show this. We haven't really watched the whole thing, so we're going to be reacting with you guys. Like you, you know, we're seeing it for the very first time. Like I only watched like three or four minutes of this, yeah. and this guy is crazy. Uh, so we want to. We're we're trying to get. If we're going to do these type of shows, we're trying to get away from watching the whole thing. We want to react like the way you guys are in the audience. So. Um, but, uh, yeah, let's get started. It's one thing that I recalled about her and I wanted to keep those. I like a good set of gowns, you know, right. with legs. You're looking at it, just the curvature of you, <clears throat> you know, withstand, not withstanding it would cut off of a person. At that point, I pretty much went on to the head. It was a hanging knife. It went through, it went through the throat like that. Like cutting butter. I'm yelling, what's going on? And I look at Sean. Sean just shrugs his shoulders and says, sorry, honey bunny. And one of the officers turns around and looks at me and says, didn't you know you're living with a serial killer? Can you imagine? I, 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 don't, I don't even know what I would do. The capital city of Louisiana like, is you, Baton Rouge. How do you live with, how do you it's live popular with for its Cajun Creole culture, as well as its distinct music and delicious cuisine. The term Baton Rouge actually means red stick in French, and at one time the city itself belonged to France. Now it's changed hands many times from the English in 1763 to the Spanish in 1779 until a small revolution in 1810 helped overthrow the Spaniards and drive the region into the arms of the Union, or as you know it now, the United States. Nowadays, Louisiana ranks seventh in the country for producing serial killers. That was good, Chris. That was, that good. was good. Between <laughs> 1992 and 2004, two serial killers who targeted women kept the police in Baton Rouge busy and the citizens on edge. Between them, they're known to have raped and murdered at least 15 women in a 10-year period, but of course the toll could be much higher. Sean Vincent Gillis, a white man, murdered and mutilated at least eight women while Derek Todd Lee, a black man, was responsible for the death of at least seven. Because these two serial killers were active during the same period, police didn't realize they should be looking for two men. The FBI profile pointed to a white male, so Derek Lee was ruled out at first, even though he'd been arrested for stalking and voyeurism previously. However, DNA found under the fingernails of murder victim Gerilyn Bardesoto in January of 2002 resulted in Lee's arrest on May 27th, of 2003. As far as the police were concerned, they had caught the Baton Rouge killer, and they were sure of it. He was consequently sentenced to death and remanded to the Louisiana State Penitentiary on October 14th of 2004. But Derek Lee never made it as far as his sentence ordered. While waiting for lethal injection, he died on January 21st, 2016 of heart disease at the age of 48. Derek Todd Lee lived to be older than his victims, most of whom were in their 20s when they were beaten, stabbed, or strangled to death. Sean Vincent Gillis, who police discovered later, was dubbed as the other Baton Rouge killer. While Derek Lee was disturbed, Sean Gillis was far more depraved. This episode will focus on the reign of terror he held over Baton Rouge for approximately a decade. Oh, and once wow. caught, he relished in reliving his accounts of each crime 
reveling in the shock value of his sadistic methods. Thankfully, most of the people he killed were already dead before the darkest parts of Sean's crimes could be enacted. That's just the kind of monster he was, and that's how he liked his victims. Dead. That way he could take his time with them. You see, Sean Gillis didn't want a screaming captive. Rather, it was in silence he committed his worst acts. I'm Mr. Black, and this is The Disturbing Truth. Now, what's that? Go ahead. I said, everyone check out Mr. Black. The Instagram was right there below. Make sure to give him credit. Yeah. Um, I've heard, I've heard lots of stories, uh, about, uh, killers doing most of their damage after the bodies are already done. Oh, yeah. already dead. And I'm not just talking about chopping chopping them up and stuff like that and then putting them in separate garbage bags like some of these serial killers have done absolutely vile things with uh some of these people that they've they've killed and yeah. this guy goes beyond anything i've ever ever heard in my life and it's even just ed gein? what's that even ed gein not not familiar Ed Gein was the serial killer that basically made bone necklaces, made uh, made heads out of like like skulls out of cups and bowls and stuff. And I like I've never heard of this guy. Oh my gosh! Where is he from? You, I will send you. I forget the area that he's, that it's from, but it's down south. Like. Born in Baton Rouge on June twenty fourth of nineteen sixty two. Sean Vincent Gillis was his mother's pride and joy. His alcoholic father, Norman, deserted the family when Sean was young, leaving his mother, Yvonne, to raise him with the help of his paternal grandparents. Yvonne worked hard to provide for her beloved son, calling him her little blue-eyed angel. She said he was well-behaved and smart, but Yvonne had a blind spot where her precious angel was concerned. As a toddler, Gillis was almost killed by his father once. You see, when Norman drank, he became violent and his aggression poured out onto his wife and son. One day, Yvonne arrived home to find her husband holding a gun to Sean's head, threatening to kill them both. Yvonne somehow got Sean away to safety and called the police. Okay, Norman was taken to a psychiatric hospital and never bothered his wife and son again. Sean never got any psychiatric help for this traumatic event and may not even remember it, but I'm sure it played a role in what he'd become later on. At a young age, he was specifically fascinated by funeral homes even sneaking into one once with a cousin and climbing into coffins. Most kids would be scared of things like that and likely shy away from death altogether, but... And I agree with uh, I agree with what Chris said. I think that is a huge factor when you come from abusive parents. Yeah. Uh, whether You're it's the mother, fine. whether it's the father or whatever. I think with the father, and correct me if I'm wrong, AJ, but I think with the father, when it becomes... When it's uh, when it's the father, when you're if you end up like this, it's more of a violent thing. When it's yeah. your mother being abusive, it's more of a sexual thing. Mm. You know, I never thought. Of, Have no. you ever thought about that? I never did. Yeah. So I've heard that if it's like I said, if it's father, it's violent. If it's mother, it's sexual, um, which. Obviously, there's a lot of there's a lot of facts to to back that up with yeah. obviously certain killers. Yeah. Not Sean. 
he seemed to lean into it. Outside of that, Gillis had a pretty normal life as a child. He'd hang out at the mall in the movies or go to the homes of his two best friends, John Green and John Rosas. As the boys got older, they started taking a secret interest in devil worship. The trio would sneak off to watch Satanists practice their rituals. These acts both scared and excited the boys. When Gillis was about 17, he briefly reunited with his father. But when he discovered Norman's gay porn collection, he was disgusted. After that, he had nothing else to do with his dad. It's just puzzling how this left Sean feeling dirty and grossed out considering what he would go on to do. A common theme we keep discussing on this channel is that of self-defense. That's why I've teamed up with Palm Pepper Spray, a proud sponsor of The Disturbing Truth. If you follow my show, you know that protecting yourself and your loved ones is important. And you should also know that a good pepper spray should be your first line of defense. And that's where Palm's got us covered. Whether it's the keychain-worthy, clippable Palm Original, or something bigger like the Palm MK3, you don't have to face the dangers of this world empty-handed. The Palm MK3 has an incredible 18 approaches you has good intentions and that goes for animals too you can learn more at palmpepperspray.com and use the code disturbing truth 10 for 10 percent off yeah fuck up your attack in 1980 also at the age of 17 sean was arrested for some petty crimes like traffic citations a dui and possession of marijuana but still nothing violent after graduating from school he worked at a convenience store but he lacked any real ambition Sean really didn't like working. And when he discovered adult entertainment on the internet, he became obsessed with it, especially websites that featured forced situations or even dismemberment. After that, he just wanted to stay home with his best friend, his computer, the gateway to a whole dark world of depravity for his wandering, sadistic mind. Over 12 years later in 1992, Yvonne moved to the state of Georgia for a new job. She asked Sean to go with her, but he refused, so she went alone promising to continue to pay the mortgage on their house in Baton Rouge so Gillis could continue to live there. He was a healthy and capable 30-year-old man, yet his mommy was still paying his rent. With Yvonne out of state, Sean was left with all the time in the world to indulge in adult entertainment and other dark online materials. As his obsession continued to grow, so did the suspicion of his neighbors. I mean, they understandably thought it was strange when they heard him howling in the middle of the night. And then on top of being strange, Women and girls were afraid of him in general, and Sean was also a verified peeping Tom after he'd been caught looking in a lady's bedroom window. There was no doubt that he was obviously an odd guy, but at that point, Sean Vincent Gillis hadn't been arrested for anything violent. In 1994, a mutual friend introduced Sean to Terry Lemoyne, and surprisingly, they immediately hit it off. Terry thought he was nice, they both loved science fiction, specifically Star Trek, and the pair both loved collecting things. Terry thought he was as cute as a teddy bear, describing him as the type of guy you bring home to meet your mom. She claimed Sean Gillis was the best boyfriend, considerate, attentive, and loving. Terry had already married and been divorced a couple of times, so she was willing to compromise to make the relationship work, and it did, for about nine years. Gillis had his flaws, of course, but she ignored them. Terry didn't like that he drank a lot, and she was slightly bothered that he showed little interest in being intimate with her, but she figured this was down to his obsession with adult entertainment. Unfortunately, she was unaware of just how violent the media he indulged in actually was. Terry often went to bed alone and woke up alone while Gillis stayed on his computer all night. With his mom paying his bills, he didn't need to work, but eventually, Terry talked him into a job at the convenience store where she worked. But Sean wasn't what you call a people person, and he only lasted about three weeks. After that, he returned to his computer. 
On the 20th of March, 1994, at about 3 a.m., Gillis brutally murdered an elderly person named Anne Bryan. Anne was an 81-year-old woman staying in an assisted living facility. She'd left her door unlocked so the nurse could get in the next morning. Sean crept in, attempted to intimately violate her, but Anne screamed, and that scared him. Sean cut her throat to silence her before viciously stabbing her around 50 times all over her body, including her private area. The attack was so bad that he disemboweled her and almost left her decapitated. She was found the next morning by her caretaker, but there were no eyewitnesses and no one had a clue who killed Anne Bryan, not even Terry. I'm sorry to hurt people, but I would do it again. The horrific murder of elderly Anne Bryan shocked the community and stumped the police. They had no suspects and no leads. Then shortly after the murder, Terry and Sean moved in together and one might ask how she was unable to see the monster inside her partner, but guys like Sean are often so good at flying under the radar that it's no surprise he had Terry fooled. Sources say Sean didn't kill again for five years, but I wonder if there are victims during this time that no one connected him to. Serial killers usually can't control themselves for five years, can they? I mean, I suppose Dennis Rader did, but some believe that Gillis abstained because his love for Terry kept him in check. It's possible, but I doubt it. If there were any other victims during this time, they're probably still unsolved. On January 4th of 1999, Sean Vincent Gillis murdered Catherine Ann Hall, a 29-year-old black woman. Catherine was a sex worker. So she willingly- Let me ask you this. And we're going to yeah. stop every so often because I'm 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 curious about this. Yeah. And maybe the people in the audience can answer this too. He 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 killed so easily people that he didn't know. Why do you think he never did it to his wife? Exactly. Well, he had to put up a persona, I think. I think he was trying to live that double life so that he didn't get caught. Kind of in the show Dexter when that serial killer, you know, like had a life, a family and all this stuff. You know, it's like you're trying to live normal so that you don't get caught. They wouldn't because, suspect you. Yeah, it, it, it always I, I guess I guess that would be true. It just I, I always wonder that, you know, and yeah. John said, that, if, you, if you notice on all murders, they're left, they're left eyes. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I saw that earlier. I put that up. I put that comment up earlier. Yeah. Oh, you did. Oh, sorry. Yeah. I didn't see yeah. It. yeah. It it is. And Chris, you're right. It is. It's so weird that they they kill innocent people so easily, but then when it comes to their own family or wives or kids, it's completely different. Yeah, and you wonder like what keeps them safe. Yeah. What do it's they do differently? It's interesting got into Gillis's car that night for business purposes. While she was performing a certain act on him, Sean attempted to strangle her with a zip tie he nicknamed the Objectifier. Catherine did fight back, but Sean overpowered her before stabbing her 16 times. When she was dead, he intimately violated her corpse before mutilating her body. After Sean was finished, he headed to the Splash Car Wash to clean evidence off his car. During the process, he took Catherine out of the vehicle and laid her on the ground, but it was so late at night that no one saw anything. Sean later dumped Catherine's naked body on a rural road right under a dead-end sign where a hunter later found her. During the autopsy, a pubic hair was found in her mouth that would later be tested for DNA. Objectification is exactly how I look at it. Called my weapon that, sometimes the objectifier. 
because it would turn them from a woman to the object that I would then deal with. After this murder, Terry Lemoyne was becoming uneasy. Due to her grand mall seizures, she couldn't drive and she relied on Sean to drop her off and pick her up from work. Located just across the street from the scene of Sean's first murder of elderly woman Anne Bryan. For Terry, this was a little too close, but she had no idea just how close to the killer she actually was. Only four months would go by before Gillis found his next victim, 52-year-old Hardy Schmidt. He stalked Hardy during her morning jogs for around three weeks. She was a wife, mother of three, and had previously run the Boston Marathon. On May 30th of 1999, at around 6.30 a.m., Sean ran her down with his car and knocked her into a ditch. He rushed out and strangled her, but purposely not enough to kill her. After dragging the frightened woman into his car, he drove to a nearby park where he intimately violated her and murdered her. After mutilation, he put her naked and bloody body into his trunk before driving home. The next night, when he picked Terry up after her shift, she complained about a strong odor in his car. Sean brushed it off, claiming he'd recently hit an animal, and he promised to clean the car as soon as possible. But Terry had no idea what Sean was hiding in that trunk. Is that's one of the few times Terry did get to ride with a bunny in the car, um, without knowing it. I mean, because I mean, she was woman had just been dead, you know, a few hours earlier. Did he just did he just chuckle at the beginning yeah. of that? Yeah, he did. That's sickening. That is sickening. He chuckled at the fact that his, oh, yeah, well, my wife, that was the one, one of the times that I had the bodies in the car with, you know, and she was with me. And like, he chuckled over that. That is fucked up. Excuse me. And wife. here's a, yeah, and here's a comment from Pam. I wonder if the kids would have the same thoughts. You yeah. have to wonder. You yeah. have to, you do have to wonder that. Yeah. Does it like, run in well, the family? Like, is it genetic? Do they, like, because there is a gene that has been known. There was a scientist that did a study on genes of psychopaths and how he found out was he actually had the gene himself, but it shows that you have no empathy towards others or towards animals or towards anything. And this guy is showing it completely. No empathy at all. But yeah. how do you love your wife? That's the thing. Yeah, that's weird. On June 1st, Hardy Schmidt's body was discovered by a cyclist in St. James Parish Bayou next to the highway. Initially, Schmidt's husband was considered a suspect until DNA found inside her body proved otherwise. Then just a month or two later, Sean Vincent Gillis was at it again, hunting for the perfect prey. It didn't take him long to stumble upon 36-year-old Joyce Williams. She had beautiful legs, and that's what Gillis liked about her. So on November 12th of 1999, he picked her up in Scotlandville, drove her across the Mississippi River, and took her out to a sugarcane field near Port Allen, where he strangled her with the objectifier. After that, he took the deceased victim's body back home and basically autopsied it in the kitchen where he and Terry normally prepared their dinners. He also intimately violated Joyce's body before eating parts of it. He then severed one of her legs with a hacksaw before decapitating her. When he was done, he stuffed her in bags and carried them out to his car. Somehow, Sean managed to clean the place before picking Terry up from work. Terry suspected nothing when Sean dropped her off and left to go dump the body. A couple months later, on January 22nd of the year 2000, Joyce Williams' remains were found in a wooded area in Iberville, Paris. Within the same month, Sean Gillis struck again, killing 52-year-old sex worker 
Lillian Robinson. He used the same type of zip tie to end her life. Then when he finished, like his previous victim, he took her home. But because Terry would be getting off work soon, Sean didn't have time to mess with Lillian's corpse the way he did Joyce Williams, but he did what he could before running out of time. A month later, a fisherman discovered her body near Whiskey Bay. What's awful is that an autopsy showed that Lillian had drowned after she was tossed off that bridge. At one point, I could control it. It's, it's beyond my control at the moment. I'm a homicidal maniac. I don't mean to be. In October of that same year, 38-year-old Marilyn Nevels also found herself in the sadistic path of Sean Vincent Gillis when he abducted her near Lafayette. She even managed to escape temporarily, but he caught her again and beat her to death with a steel rod before dumping her body on the Mississippi River levee near Baton Rouge. Marilyn's decomposing body was found on Halloween. When more bodies started popping up that Gillis wasn't responsible for, he knew he had competition. That's when Sean began keeping track of these other murders on his computer. Now at this point, police also began focusing on these new crimes. They even formed a task force in August of 2002 that focused on catching the Baton Rouge killer. A profiler told them to look for a white male, perhaps a loner raised by his mother, maybe someone obsessed with knives, definitely a monster who got aroused by killing. I know right from wrong as well as you do. But there are certain times when it fuzzes out. And it's really not that I don't know it anymore. It's like, it doesn't matter anymore. This is my universe. I am God. DNA found on the body of Trinisha Dean Collum linked her murder to a group of others. Whoever was responsible hadn't been caught, but in May of 2003, police arrested a 34-year-old black man named Derek Todd Lee for the crimes. The media praised police for catching the Baton Rouge killer, but little did they know there was another monster on the prowl. Of course, Sean Gillis became infatuated with his competitor. In a file on his computer labeled DTL for Derek Todd Lee, Gillis collected news articles, photos, and information about Lee's crimes. He became obsessed with outdoing Lee, taunting police, and escaping justice. At some point, Terry noticed that Sean was putting a lot of miles on the car. Since their relationship was platonic, she just thought he was cheating on her. But as she would later find out, Sean was hunting, stalking, and planning his next kill. In October of 2003, Gillis did something serial killers rarely do. He murdered someone he'd been friends with, someone he'd known personally for about 10 years, a divorced mother of three and 45-year-old sex worker named Joni May Williams. He had hired her to clean his house and they'd even partied together over the years, but that night there was no party as Sean drove Joni to a secluded area where he brutally beat and intimately violated her before strangling and stabbing her to death. Her legs had been cut open on the front and the back. Sean also posed her body in various ways, snapping pictures before dumping her mutilated corpse in a field behind a restaurant. When the cops found Joni's body, her hands had been removed. They also found a hair in her bone, which helped them narrow down the search to a white male. We used a sharp knife to cut. Um, I remember trying to get her arm off as well. The dismemberment unfortunately did occur at my house on my kitchen floor. 
I don't know how much blood y'all found, but I clean and clean and clean that place. Sean's final victim was 43-year-old mother and sex worker Donna Bennett Johnston. She was drunk when Gillis picked her up. He strangled her to death not far from his home on February 26, 2004. He then cut her up pretty badly and allegedly ate parts of her. Sean even took one of her arms home to use for extremely nefarious purposes. You can probably guess what I mean. Her body was found the next day in a drainage canal. Donna's murder was no doubt Sean's most gruesome. It showed that his evil desires were certainly growing. But unbeknownst to Gillis, he'd made a massive mistake when he killed her. Near the canal, investigators found fresh tire tracks, so armed with crime scene photos and an impression of those tracks, police contacted the Goodyear Tire Company to find out what type of vehicle would use those tires. It turned out to be a white Chevrolet Cavalier, and only 90 people in Baton Rouge had ever purchased that tire. The cops knew they were close. Major Brian White tasked his officers with locating and interviewing every name on that tire list. Great they were name. also instructed Great to name. gather DNA in the process. They already had DNA evidence from Catherine Hall, Joni Mae Williams, and from beneath the nails of Donna Johnston, who tried to fight off her attacker. But that DNA didn't match anyone in their system. So hopes were high that the tracks would drive police to the one responsible for all the bodies they'd been finding. And it wouldn't be long before they got a match. Sean Vincent Gillis was number 26 on the list of tire owners. He didn't have a criminal record, so he wasn't remotely a suspect when the detective showed up at his door. But Gillis made suspicious statements when he admitted that Joni Mae Williams was not only a friend, but had also been in his car. Hell, Sean even admitted to being in the area of the crime scene, claiming it was because he stopped there to pee. But the detective wasn't buying his story. He politely asked if Gillis would come down to the station for a friendly chat, and Sean agreed. He even consented to a recorded interview. And the other thing we wanted to talk about, when's the last time you were ever around that field? You're talk, we're talking about where she was found. I don't know so. That was about the weekend before the incident. On the what what has found? I had some beer, needed to go to the bathroom real bad, and the old one going to make it to the house, and so I just went to go pee. <laughs> I was just going back there, full out there. I was just going to stop at the gate, but the gate was like busted open, so I'm like, okay. Investigators asked Sean if they would find Joni Mae Williams' blood in his car. Gillis said yes and claimed that she got her period, accidentally messing up his front seat. He was quoted as saying, it looked like a massacre. And his excuse for how her blood might have ended up in his backseat was laughable. He blamed the wind. That's when Major White knew he'd caught the other Baton Rouge killer, and he was sure of it. After White excused himself from the interview room, he immediately ordered the analysis of the cheek swab they took from Gillis, as well as a search warrant for his car and home. He was positive he had his man, but he knew he couldn't hold Sean forever on the circumstantial statements he had. Eventually, he had to let Sean go home. For several slow hours, investigators could do nothing but wait for the lab report and a warrant from a judge. Finally, on April 29th of 2004, with the help of a SWAT team, Sean Vincent Gillis was arrested at around 1.20 a.m. As police barged into his house, Terry had no idea what was going on, but police quickly informed her that she'd been living with a serial killer. But like many partners and significant others of serial killers, they usually are clueless. I mean, when you partner with a person for a long time, you trust them deeply. You never think, is this person a serial killer? You only think with your heart because you're in love and love is blind, but 
Opening your eyes to this kind of truth means facing the fact that you were likely just another object the killer used for personal gain, a disguise, a place to hide, and while you thought you were in love with a person like you, a monster wore your heart as a mask as they bit into the hearts of others. Yeah, so basically, Terry said, guys, right? that's not the Sean I knew, the but the up. Sean she knew likely never existed. She asked to speak with him and they let the two talk on the phone. When everything happened, I laughed at the police when they told me why they arrested. I literally laughed and told them, boy, do you have the wrong house. They said he admitted it. And at which point my mouth just dropped and I said, well, I'll have to ask him myself. When Terry questioned Sean about whether or not he did everything he was accused of, he admitted that he did. Armed with a search warrant, detectives recovered a large arsenal of weapons including seven saws, a hacksaw, knives, a machete, a 14-inch bayonet, a wooden club, and the zip ties. They also took into evidence several computers, photographs of Joni Mae Williams' body, several books about serial killers, and newspaper articles about Derek Lee's victims. On Sean's computer, they found files about Russian necrophilia, the Manson murders, hangings, and even beheadings. Justice was coming for Sean Vincent Gillis, and he couldn't stop it. There were desires, and as I told him, I fought them. Okay. I mean, there's there's just so long you can fight something. Okay. Before it's just overwhelming. It's like it's like the cookie jar, and I'll use that analogy. You're looking at it. You know you can't go into the cookie jar. You've been told don't go into the cookie jar. And you probably won't go into the cookie jar if you're a good kid. Yeah. Which I was, literally was. I was a sick kid, obviously, but good. And in this instance, sooner or later, the hand goes into the cookie jar. It just the, the, it just overwhelms you after a while. The whole time you're tempted. Um, a lot of the times I was tempted, but nothing until then that I just lost control of it. Yeah. I mean, it's just uh, until then it was to the point like, it's a statement my grandfather used to quote from the Bible. I don't know what book of the Bible or anything, but it was just a, when, whenever he was feeling the urge, you know, the, the urge to just do something naughty or something, you know, and he said, say, get thee behind me, Satan. Uh -huh. And that pretty much worked for a while. Satan quit getting behind me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. By 7 a.m. on the day he was questioned, Gillis confessed to the murders of eight people. Unfortunately, his taped confession was inadmissible at trial because he'd requested the lawyer just before bragging about his crimes. He described every murder in grotesque detail, even laughing and joking about all the sick stuff he'd done to his victims, but none of that could be used. Sean had even told them about his favorite murder weapon, the Objectifier, a white nylon zip tie that was roughly two and a half feet long. He also described how he played with Donna Johnston's remains at his house, carrying her into the shower where he soaked her up and cuddled her body. The bastard even painted the nails on Donna's severed hands. Again, none of these details could be used at trial, but Major White was not about to let a serial killer go free on a technicality. The authorities needed hard physical evidence in order to nail a conviction. And fortunately for them, the search of Sean's home turned up 45 digital photos of Donna Bennett Johnston, including one of her body in the trunk of his car. Photographs of his other victims were found as well, with one image even capturing Sean's license plate with one of the bodies. And if that isn't crazy enough, 
Sean kept some of his victim's body parts in his home as souvenirs to remember his crimes by. There is no doubt that Gillis is one of the worst monsters America has ever seen. Psychologist Joni Johnson described Gillis this way. She said, The actual kill is not as sexy to him as what happens after. He's attracted to the body parts of these dead corpses, which is beyond rare. FBI profiler Mary Ellen O'Toole said Sean had revealed to her that he was attracted to his own mother. He even said that if she had passed away, they may have found him in bed with her. I wonder if his mother had any clue. Had she noticed her son was off? Was that why she moved to Georgia and paid for him to stay in Baton Rouge? Who knows? As luck would have it, a longtime friend of Joni Johnston named Tammy Perpera wrote letters to Gillis and he actually answered them. He detailed the killing of Johnston, writing, I still puzzle over the post-mortem dismemberment and cutting. There must be something deep in my subconscious that really needs that kind of macabre action. I was pure evil that night. No love, no compassion, no faith, no mercy, no hope. Tammy died of a long-term disease in 2005, but before she did, she turned all those letters over to the police to be used for future convictions. It was Tammy who put the final nail in Sean's coffin. How did this come to be, man? Does the word monster come to mind? Tell me an approximate number. Four, five, six, seven. I honestly don't count. I don't count. I don't. The prosecutor on the case hoped for the death sentence, but the jury was split and couldn't unanimously agree upon it. One juror even said he would never agree to a death sentence, which is very Jesus of him. Myself, on the other hand, would love to be on a firing squad in a world where Sean Vincent Gillis would be forced to face one. On July 21st of 2008, Gillis was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole three times. The previous year, he pleaded guilty to the murder of Joyce Williams and received a life sentence for that crime too. Sean has lived out his pitiful existence at the Louisiana State Penitentiary in isolation for his safety and the safety of other prisoners. He's now 60 years old, an age that seven of his victims never got a chance to see. According to a Crime Watch Daily interview, Terry Lemoyne still lives in the house she lived in with Gillis. She said the house is just a building. It's not evil. Oddly, she still has the bloodied Chevy Cavalier that Gillis used for his crimes, which is now a mere hunk of metal sitting rotting in her backyard. She also renovated the house and swears she senses no negativity from it. But I wonder if she'd feel differently had she come home and caught her partner playing with his victims on their kitchen floor. Again, who knows? I guess people cope in different ways. I just hope Sean Vincent Gillis does his coping in hell or somewhere similar. Rest in peace to all the victims mentioned in this awful story. As for my viewers, stay safe out there and remember to look over your shoulder as often as you need to. Evil stalks, it hides, it waits, it takes. I'd rather be called paranoid than a victim. And if ever you have even the slightest urge to do so, go and double check your locks. I'm Mr. Black. And this is the disturbing truth. Wow. Yeah. I cannot believe that she still lives in the same house. No.
I would never live in the same house because you know this like okay like talking about like spiritual aspect like you killed someone and dismembered them on your kitchen table like if I was a spirit and that was real I would be haunting that house like crazy like crazy and my question is why does he still have the car yeah why do you still have the car like you have you gotta wonder do you think she visits him Oh, I is, he, is he allowed visitors? I, I'm sure he is. And I, I guarantee that, that she probably does. Because why would you have all that stuff to remind you of him? And then. I'm I'm absolutely blown away she's still in the same house. Yeah. That's wild. Can you imagine what the neighbors think? Like, I would. I would. I would. I wouldn't even sell the house. I'd just tear it down and walk away from it. Yeah. And just leave it. Just leave it. Like just leave the property. And that's, I, wow. I'm, I'm blown away that she's still there. Like I would, I, I can't even imagine. I wouldn't be surprised if there's spirit in her house. Yeah. It's crazy. I wouldn't doubt it. I wouldn't. You look like you're going to pass out, buddy. Oh no, I'm good. Yeah, you, you, is it me, folks, or does AJ look like he's going to pass out? <laughs> oh no, I'm good. <laughs> oh man, that was that was um, that was a crazy, crazy case. Like, and he could have gotten away with it if he didn't have the pictures, yeah, body parts, anything in his home. He could have gotten away with it. On a technicality. Yeah. It's like and he the, wanted to get caught. And, and that's what I mean. Like, could you imagine if he if he didn't have any of those parts out? He'd say, well, he would he he probably would have killed again for sure. But my oh, yeah. question my question to you is, and this was at the, the beginning, and the, my question is for the folks in, in the room as well. That five years where they say he didn't commit any murder. It seemed to me that he'd been he'd been killing every four to six months. So how did he go five years without doing it? Yeah, exactly. So you gotta imagine there's probably a lot more bodies out there that he killed. And for him to say I didn't count, which is a which would be a strong indication that he probably killed a lot more. Oh, one hundred percent. This guy definitely killed a lot more. And for him to stop for five years is like is I mean, he studied serial killers. You could tell by what they found at his house. So, like, he probably studied, excuse me, what they did wrong. You know what I mean? He probably studied that, like, where they went wrong and probably tried to, you know, make his own version of it. And it yeah. worked for him for yeah. so long, but he screwed up, you yeah. know? And then, it, and then the one part competing with the other killer. Yeah. Yeah. Like, what the hell? Like, like, seriously? Yeah. It's like, how sick are these people now? And again, it's one of those stats. I'm just saying one of those stats. It's very, very seldom, very, very seldom that you have a, uh, uh, a black man who's a serial killer. Yeah. It's usually, it's usually white people. Yeah. You know, so that that's even a little bit, you know, odd. But 
Um, I I don't think I'm ever going to get over the fact that he's he still lives in the house. Yeah, I don't think I'm ever going to get over that. And you got to wonder if she's a little bit on the mm -hmm. cuckoo side herself. Yes, she <laughs> like, definitely has to be. Like definitely. wow, wow. But um, do you want to talk about? Do you want to talk about next week's show? Yeah, so we for... have a great show coming up. Sorry, AJ, we have a great show coming up next week. Now we will let people know because I wanted to let people know in this on on this show today. The reason it's not over on YouTube, like when we're showing these videos, because vi YouTube has a very unfortunate, unfortunately, a very strict policy. So when we're showing videos, we will not be on YouTube. But when we're doing interviews, we will be on YouTube. So you want to talk about next week? Yeah, so next week we have a guest that's actually my family member. Uh, it's my aunt. She's actually a correctional facility um, employee over here and where I live in Connecticut. Um, she's in two of the most, um, how do I say this, two of the most serious prisons um, out of many serious prisons in Connecticut. But uh, one is McDougal and the other is Walker, which are both gang prisons. And she works in the unit where the inmates that are lifers actually help and train German shepherds to become uh, working dogs. And they work with the dog until the dog meets a certain requirement and then it gets, you know, um, adopted and, you know, they start with a brand new dog. And she works in that that um, segment of the. Uh, prison, but has worked in many different population, um, you know, segments or whatever you want to call them, blocks, as they call them, in the prison. So it's going to be a fascinating show. Um, some of the things she may not be able to answer just because of her job, you're not supposed to say too much, but we're going to see what we can get out and uh, what she can share with us. Yeah. And this is, and this is the type of show that we're going to be doing. We're going to be doing not only these videos, but we're also going to be doing interviews. What I would really love to get on this show and hoping that we will somewhere down the road, I would really love to get a profiler on the show on how they go about profiling people that have committed these, these type of things. Um, yeah, the HIPAA HIPAA is, you know, HIPAA. Yeah. You got to be careful of HIPAA. We don't have HIPAA. We have something similar in Canada, but it's not called HIPAA. But um, yeah, but it's the responsibility of the of the person that's been trained in HIPAA to protect that privacy. Obviously, we're not going to be talking about inmates and stuff like that. We're just going to mainly talk about her her job and what it's like in you know daily life uh, working in a prison. I think that's what we're really going to you know, talk about, we're not going to talk about the prisoners and stuff like that. Uh, she won't be able to talk about that. I don't think so. And obviously we won't be able to show pictures of the prison and her to talk about them because she won't be, she won't be allowed to do that as well. I imagine, but we're going to bring on these type of people, but I would love to really bring on a profiler somewhere down the road on how they profile someone. I think it's uh, I think that would be a really cool show. And I think a lot of people will get some enjoyment out of that. Yeah. on uh, how they do that but again this is the type of show we're going to do we're going to interview people we're going to show videos and stuff like that but uh let's let's see what happens uh down the road we're we're having a lot of fun so far 
AJ? Absolutely. I'm, dude, I'm having a, I'm a ton of blast, like a blast, like learning about all these cases and like especially this guy right here who manipulated his way into someone's life and like literally lived a double life was absolutely, absolutely wild. It makes you it makes you question people that you meet during the day strangers you know what i mean like who they could be and what their secret life is you know yeah yeah and i agree and we're you know even though a lot of these stories are going to be really sad obviously like obviously this one was today nobody should ever die that way and and then especially what happened after they died is absolutely absolutely brutal but um i want to thank everybody that came in the room today i want to thank obviously my partner here uh for bringing attention to this this video and uh i'm gonna say my goodbyes we'll see everybody next week and i we hope you enjoyed the show and if you did please share it out for us please like it and if you can if you haven't yet go over to our youtube channel uh and uh subscribe over there because we will be posting we we are posting stuff during the week like little clippets of this of this show or the last show we put them up on YouTube, but uh, we won't be on YouTube as much as we will be on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Um, so actually, I don't think we're on Twitter today. We're just on Facebook and LinkedIn today. So, um, but uh, I hope everybody enjoyed it. We'll see you next week. AJ. Yeah. Um, thank you guys so much for tuning in. Um, this has been an awesome experience to start this podcast, bring you guys something different. Um, sit and be able to review stuff with you guys. So I hope that you guys stick with us. Please share it out and uh, let's grow together. And this is case file number two. So until next time, this is Crime Documentaries with AJ Capasso and Brian John Laverty.